scripture passage comes from 1 Kings chapter 5 this evening. talking about um, uh, the people that served Solomon and how the Lord blessed Solomon to the point that he was so rich, so prosperous. And chapter 5, Solomon, now uh, the highlight of Solomon's kingdom, a building of the temple is about to begin in chapter 5. Here we are. Now Hiram, Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram, Hiram had always loved David. Then Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side, until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build a house for my name. Now therefore I command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, and my servants will be your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants, according to whatever you say. For you know there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. So it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. Now I'm going to pause here. It's interesting. Uh, uh, Hiram, uh, he's uh, praising uh, the Lord. You would think um, he would praise a Solomon, a person, but the focus is always when we try to understand the passages, it has to be always God-centered. Praise be the Lord that he has given David a wise son over this great people. Verse 8, Then Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the message which you sent me, and I will do all you desire concerning the cedar and cypress logs. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea. I will float them in a raft by sea to the place you indicate to me. And we'll have them broken apart there. Then you can take them away, and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. Then Hiram gave a Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as a food for his household, and 20 cores of pressed oil. Thus Solomon gave Hiram year by year. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and two of them made a treaty together. Then King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel, and the labor force was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in, a, in shifts. Uh, they were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was uh, in charge of the labor force. Solomon had 70,000 who carried the burdens and 80,000 who carried the stone uh, in the mountains. Besides the 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who supervised the people who labored in the work. And the king commanded.
commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones, and hewn stones to lay the foundation of the temple. So Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, and the Gebelites quarried them, and they prepared the timber and stones to build the temple. We'll be focusing on the, um, in the sermon, we'll be focusing on the uh, verse um, 18, the Hiram's builders, Gebelites, and uh, they all quarried the timber uh, and stones to build the uh, temple. The confessional reading is from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 20. You're going through uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, that portion going, is going through uh, the Apostles' Creed that we did look at. He's uh, uh, sitting at the uh, right hand of God. He will come to judge the living and the dead. Uh, we saw that that the aspect of judgment from Solomon's great judgment on the two prostitutes in 1 Kings 3 and then uh, Lord's Day 20. Here we are. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, that the Holy, uh, that the Spirit with the Father and the Son is eternal God. A second, He is given also to me so that through true faith he makes me share in Christ and all his benefits comforts me and will remain with me forever beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ Holy Spirit what does the Holy Spirit do uh, some people think that reformed Churches do not have a strong emphasis on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit uh, compared to other churches like uh, evangelical churches or uh, Pentecostal churches. Those who attend a Pentecostal or charismatic churches seem to have more energy or energetic activities uh, and then they claim that everything is done by the Holy Spirit. And it seems like they put more emphasis on the Holy Spirit than other churches. And also when you study our confessions, uh, uh, especially the Heidelberg Catechism, if you look at it, if you read through at first glance, uh, it seems like our confession puts less emphasis, it seems like, uh, on the Holy Spirit. When you ask a question, let's say to a catechism student or someone who studies Reformed faith, where do you find the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Heidelberg Catechism? And then people will point to the place like which we read, Lord's Day 20. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Can you think of any, anywhere else? Um, and then, if you look at just the title and just glance through, uh, it, is, it seems very hard to find the teachings about the Holy Spirit in the Lord's Days. Now, considering that we have 52 Lord's Days, it seems that only one Lord's Day was assigned to deal with the topic of the Holy Spirit. And moreover, as we, as we just read, the Lord's Day 20 is very short, just one question and answer. But is it true that the Reformed Church lacks or gives a less attention to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? The answer is not at all. Yes, it is true at first glance. 
It seems like only Lord's Day 20 is dealing with the topic of the Holy Spirit, but that is not the only Lord's Day that talks about the works of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit is mentioned numerous times throughout our confessions. Lord's Day 1, by His Holy Spirit, God assures me of eternal life. Lord's Day 12, Christ is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit. And with the same Holy Spirit, you are also anointed with the same Holy Spirit. A uh, little, little side note, if you want to call it a rabbit trail, I want to call it a rabbit trail. If you look at the Nicene Creed, when it talks about um, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's, uh, that was been a controversial part in the church history. And the Son. Uh, our churches insisted to hold that view. The Holy Spirit proceeds also from the Son. It's very precious doctrine. Because the same Holy Spirit anointed the Father. The same Holy Spirit dwells. Sorry, the anointed the Son dwells in me. And also the same Spirit that dwells in Christ. That Christ said he will send the Spirit to us. John chapter 14 and 16. Lord's Day 13, Jesus was, sorry, 14. Lord's Day 14, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Lord's Day 19, Christ, he sends his gifts from heaven by his Holy Spirit. Lord's Day 25, faith. Where does our faith come from? From the Holy Spirit. Not only that, the Holy Spirit works in our heart by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by use of the sacraments. So as you can see, the Holy Spirit is everywhere. I only went through Lord's Day 1 to 25. There's more, Lord's Day 27. Holy Spirit calls the baptism, the washing of regeneration, and the washing away of sin. So, so the list goes on and on. So it's not that Reformed churches do not pay attention or less attention to the Holy Spirit. Rather, the Reformed confession contains rich and deep biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Hopefully we can uh, learn something about Holy Spirit uh, this evening. So the theme is this. The Holy Spirit makes me part of the temple, Jesus Christ. So the question, who is me here? I mean, that's you sitting here. There's something more than that. So first, the gathering of the materials for the temple. And the second, the quality control of these materials. So what does the Holy Spirit do? What does the Holy Spirit do? I mean, He does many things. One thing that I always ask to the students is that where is the first place in the Bible that you find the reference to the Holy Spirit? And if you think of the Genesis 1, you're right. But before we get into that, First of all, the scripture tells us a few things about the Holy, script, uh, Holy Spirit. First, the very scripture that we read, you read, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
2 Peter 1.21 For no prophecy was ever made by an act of man, man, human will, but man moved by the Holy, moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the prophecy, scripture, inspired by God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 and second, the Holy Spirit who inspired the Word of God, He illuminates people's heart to understand the Scripture. That's something that we should not underestimate. Daniel chapter 5, Daniel chapter 5, 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. King spoke and, and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah? I have heard you, heard you that the Spirit of God is in you. And the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. So even the, um, the Gentile king, um, Nebuchadnezzar, recognized, understood the Spirit of God gives the light and understanding uh, to, uh, to Daniel. Third, the Holy Spirit makes us to rightly recognize God as our Father. Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. So, to summarize, he inspired the word of God. He makes you understand. He gives you insight. And he applies that word to you that you may call God the Father as Abba, Father. And also there are many other things the Holy Spirit does. He was, he was involved in creation. He was involved in redemption. He was involved in the birth of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned, the Lord's Day 14. He gives faith. He gives gift, heavenly gifts to the people. We'll be spending the whole hour if you want to go through every single thing that the Holy Spirit does for you. However, I would like to focus this evening is focusing on one, one of the many works of the Holy Spirit. That is the building of God's kingdom. First, when is the first time, I think I mentioned that before, that the Holy Spirit was mentioned in the Bible? I'm sure what you were thinking of Genesis 1, and you're right. Genesis 1. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. The earth was without form and void. A darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of waters. Uh, even before the creation, Spirit of God was active. Now, I want to spend a little time here. In this verse, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. The scripture says, He was hovering over the waters. It didn't simply say He hovered over the waters, He was hovering. There's a difference, you know, grammatically, between just a simple verb and 
We call that technically, we call that participle, ing. Simple verb, for example, like when you visited me, I ate a cookie. A participle. When you visited me, I was eating a cookie. I was in the process of eating. So there's a difference. The difference is the latter one, eating, gives a sense of dynamic actions. There was something going on. He was in a process of doing something. He was hovering. The Holy Spirit wants you to pay attention to that action. Continuing in action. It's not like, it's not like he hovered over the waters and he's resting. No, he, was, he continues hovering over the waters. He kept on watching. He continues to watch over the creation and also his people. So now, this verb hovering in the original Hebrew, in the Old Testament, appears only two times in the Old Testament. One in Genesis 1-2, the other in Deuteronomy 32-11. Let's go to Deuteronomy 32-11 and see how Moses described uh, or how Moses used this word in what context and what can we learn from it. So, <clears throat> Deuteronomy 20, uh, sorry, 32, this is a song of Moses. Moses was also a songwriter. Right? You find it song and you also find a song in Psalm, Psalm 90. Excellent song. Psalm 32, uh, sorry, the Deuteronomy 32, Give a year, O heavens, I will speak and hear or earth word, or words of my mouth. And then if you go to verse 11, it says, As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign god with him. And so so there's a, uh, there it continues. So the point is, uh, he's comparing the care of the Lord uh, with eagle spreading his wings or her wings uh, and hovering over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So what is Moses singing here? He's praising the Lord. Why? Because he watches over his people like an eagle, like an eagle with wings, carrying the children, so the, in the same way, the Lord gathers them and protects his people. Similar expression is found uh, in Matthew 23, 37. Uh, in Jesus used, Jesus lamented over Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often, he said, Hi, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are not willing. So you can you have this imagery in your head already. Again, the same language under her wings, cross-reference to Psalm 91, which we sang. He dwells in the secret place of the Most High, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. So there's a God, and there's a shadow. Why? Because he shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. So this is an expression. does not mean God has the physical wings. No, this is, this is poetic expression. So the conclusion, 
Moses, he uses, and then throughout the Bible, Scripture uses this word, um, this imagery, that Moses uses this word, hovering to describe the Lord, in Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit, that he was hovering, he is still hovering, with the same wing he hovers with, he gathers and protects his people. Keyword to, to gather, he gathers, right? And he protects his people. So in the Apostles' Creed, it is very fitting that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit comes right before the doctrine of church. We say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then after we say, we confess, I believe uh, I believe the Holy Catholic Church. It is fitting because the very work of the Holy Spirit is gathering of God's people. Lord's Day 21. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? Listen to this. The Son of God through His Spirit, Holy Spirit and Word, gathers, protects, preserves for Himself a community chosen for eternal life. I am and always will be a living member of this community. So the Son of God, through His Spirit, Holy Spirit and Word, he gathers, just like Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How many times I tried to gather you under my wings just like a hen tries to gather her chicks under her wings. And that's what, that's what the Moses is trying to describe. Just like an eagle. Now we read a passage, 1 Kings 5. 1 Kings 5, Solomon begins to build the temple. Solomon makes a request to Hiram, the king of Tyre. Verse 6 of 1 Kings 5. Command that they cut down cedars from me and from Lebanon. My servants will be your servants. I will pay the wages to your servants according to whatever you ask. And then he said, There's none among us who has a skill to, come, uh, to cut the timber like Sidonians. Question. Why, why did King Solomon um, ask a foreign king, a Gentile, king of Tyre, for building materials? Well, the answer is probably because they have the best ones. There's no doubt that the cedars and cypress of Lebanon, they are the world-class building materials. They are the best. And also from the text, it's clear the Sidonians, they had the best knowledge of cutting timbers. And there's some other um, the, a group of people that quarry the stones. The people in Lebanon, they knew more about trees, of course, better than the children of Israel. That makes sense. So there was a practical reason for King Solomon to ask the king of Tyre to send the timbers. Now there is another important redemptive historical implication behind Solomon's request to Hiram, 
for the building materials. Cross-reference to 2 Chronicles 2.17, um, which is another record for the construction of this temple, says the same thing with a different expression, uh, talking about how many people that Solomon used to do this building project. Uh, 2 Chronicles 2.17, Then Solomon numbered all the aliens, now the key point, aliens, he calls aliens, all the workers, foreign workers, who were in the land of Israel after the census in which David, his father, had numbered them. They were found to be 153,600. Uh, he made 70,000 of, of them bearers of burdens, 80,000 stone cutters of, uh, in the mountain, 3,600 overseers to make people to work. So there are a bunch of foreigners living in Jerusalem or Israel, working building the temple of God. Again, these workers were aliens. They came all the way from the outside of Israel to build the temple. Why? Why did Solomon use the foreigners to build the temple of God? And here is the spiritual and theological implication. Temple of God. You see, there are many connections between Solomon's temple in the Old Testament and the bodily temple of Jesus Christ. Solomon's temple was made of cedars, cypress, stones from Tyre and Sidon. In the New Testament, the bodily temple of Christ was made of flesh and blood. And this body of Christ, which we also call, Apostle Paul calls church, was made not only with, according to the Apostle Paul, not only with the Jews, but also with the Gentiles. Paul says clearly in 1 Corinthians 12. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12. First Corinthians comes after Romans, comes before Second Corinthians, of course. First Corinthians twelve, verse twelve. He's talking about the body. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of the one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have, been, have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If you go a little further to verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ and the members of members individually. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of the one body being many are one body, so is also Christ. Now two chapters before that, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul talks about the Lord's Supper. 
which involves with the bread and wine. Bread represents Christ's flesh. I said Christ's body is made of flesh and blood. Wine represents his blood. 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 17. For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So what is it saying? What is it saying? Christ's body, the temple, new temple, is made of flesh and blood, and that flesh and blood are, as Paul calls, they are us. We, many, but we one body, and we take, therefore we take one breath. So our, the form for the Lord's Supper uh, explains brilliantly like this. As many grains are ground to prepare one loaf of bread, and as many grapes are pressed together to produce wine, so we who are by, who by true faith are incorporated into Christ shall be one body through Christ's love. We have many different characters. We have different tasks. Some are called apostles. Some are called teachers. But after all, we are one body. Just like many grains are, came to, they came together to prepare one loaf of bread. So this concept of Jews and Gentiles coming together into one body of Christ this concept was already anticipated in the Old Testament. One of the songs that we are going to sing after, Psalm 87, talks about this. Psalm 87, the glory of the city, city of David, city of God, Jerusalem. Psalm 87, verse 4, I will make a mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre and Ethiopia, this one was born there, and verse 5, and of Zion it will be said, said this one and that one born, from, born in her, and the Most High himself shall establish her, the Lord will record, when he registers the peoples, this one was born there. So there is inclusion of people from Philistia and Babylon and Ethiopia, they were born from there, but God will declare that their citizenship is in Jerusalem. Everyone from the Gentile world will come to worship the Lord. So that, was, that has been anticipated. So theologically speaking, there's an implication why Solomon is asking the foreign king to prepare building materials from foreign land, even laborers from foreign land, to come to build the temple. There's anticipation that's point, pointing forward to Jesus Christ. How Christ the community will have many believers all around the world. The book of Hebrews testifies that when the Son of God came to the world, come to the, came to the world, Christ said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared, you have prepared for me. The body. His flesh and blood. The body. Of course, it was prepared by God. First it, refer, first, it refers to the physical body of Christ, and later it refers to the community of the Lord Jesus Christ. The community, the church, was prepared by God as well. 
And we see that on the Pentecost day, Acts chapter 2, people, people from other nations came to listen to the gospel news of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit came to them as a tongue of fire. But according to the book of Hebrews, even before the Pentecost day, God already planned to gather all the nations together in the temple of Jerusalem. The body prepared by God. The church consists of many believers from many backgrounds. In other words, this church was prepared by God himself. Of course, the Hebrews 10 first refers to the physical body of Jesus Christ, special body for the atonement of sin. But we can also understand that this church was prepared by God as well, even before in the Old Testament, anticipated. Let's go to the second point, the quality control of these building materials. Another theological and redemptive historical implication that we can extract from 1 Kings 5 is this. This building of the temple, temple is the dwelling place of God, and the ultimate dwelling place of God was, is Jesus Christ, right? He, he came to this world in a physical body. He said, destroy body and I will raise it up in, in three days. Now notice that this construction in our chapter, 1 Kings 5, this construction of the temple was done in a very, very specific time. 1 Kings 5, verse 3. You know how my father, Solomon is speaking, my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side. Until, until now, the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. David was busy. Former king David was busy fighting against enemies on every side. He was a man of war. Shed, he shed too much blood. That's why he was not allowed to build a temple. But now, Solomon says, there's a rest. There's a peace. This, was, this is the one of the only times in his history that Israel was at peace with all his neighbors. In this providence of God, this was a very rare time, rare opportunity for God's people to even start or complete a building project in this magnitude. Perfect. It makes a perfect sense that the temple was built in the time of peace. Why? Because the temple was a symbol of peace. Temple, we see, temple was about is about the forgiveness of sin. What do you do in the temple? You sacrifice animals for the forgiveness of sins. Why do you need forgiveness of sins? Well, without forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, there's no peace with God. There's no eternal rest. Yes, see the concept peace and rest. 
So Jesus Christ, the ultimate temple, Emmanuel, God with us, He came for the forgiveness of our sins. That's why we say He's the ultimate temple. Through Him, through Jesus Christ, we have a peace with God. Romans 5 verse 1. He came to give us eternal rest. Take my yoke upon you, He said. He achieved this task, rest, peace, by sweats of His face, which the Gospel of Luke describes, His sweat became like a drop of blood. So again, the reason why this temple had to be built in a time of peace is because God wanted His people to realize that this temp- what His temple is all about. It's about achieving peace, namely between God and His people. And that was achieved by the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7. When the temple, when it was being built, was built with the stones finished at the quarry. So you can say they, they took out the stone from the mountain, whatever, and they made it fit, already, finished, and then they carried the stone and the timber over to Jerusalem so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tools were heard in the temple while it was being built. First, my understanding is that the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer, as the Lord said, holy place. Then when it was built, there, were, there was no noise of iron tools. It was a place of peace. Second, Notice that that all the building materials were already prepared and well-shaped and designed beforehand before being part of the temple. It has to be chiseling before, I guess. Now let's apply that in our temple, the church. Just as the Solomon's temple was built in a peaceful time, Church is supposed to be a peaceful place. But sadly, that's not the case in this sinful world. Take an example of a church in Corinth. Numerous conflicts. Members, if we're going to call it building materials, they were not peaceful. They were fighting, divided. In Solomon's temple, the building materials used were the best of the best. Beautiful cedar, beautiful stones were already prepared beforehand. But compared to that with the church, that we are not like a beautiful cedar, we are not like those beautiful stones, precious stones, We are ugly, for we are tainted with sin. Nevertheless, Paul says, we are the temple of the living God. We are the members of Christ, the temple. So how is it that such an ugly building materials like you and I can be used to build build the glorious temple? 
The answer is this, the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit transforms us. I guess the difference is um, between the, the temple in Solomon and the church uh, is that there's a calling in the church. You be part of the church. And still, there's a still transformation happening. And we call that doctrine of sanctification. Maybe we can say that like this. Before we enter the ultimate kingdom of God, where God dwells, before we enter the kingdom of God, the Spirit dwells in our hearts and sanctifies us day by day. He not only gathers the building materials, but He transforms us. First, He quarries us from the world, from the worldly rocks and if it is necessary of course it is the Holy Spirit chisels us like the workers chisel the woods and stones to fit into the kingdom of heaven the work of the Holy Spirit and that work and most of all the work of the quality control if you want to call it that way there's the, also the difference between the Solomon's temple and the church is that the quality control of the materials happens as it is centered around the work of Christ. There's another precious comment by the, one of the apostles when he spoke about the temple, spoke about church. Apostle Peter said, 1 Peter uh, 2.5, he said, You also, right? Now he's comparing you as a stones. You also, as a living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up sacrifice, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now Peter describes us as a living stone, not a cold Stone. Despite the weakness of his materials, the stones, cold stones, become alive. How? As it is attached to the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. The corners, the stone which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone, and you are built, being built around that cornerstone. As we are, as you are attached to the Christ, to Jesus Christ, you are living stone. That's why I guess there's a difference. In the Solomon's temple, they had to chisel beforehand and came. But our sanctification, our chiseling, happens when we are attached to the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Therefore, the Apostle Paul gives an exhortation to the Corinthian church how each member ought to behave. And I will end this sermon by reading the portion of 1 Corinthians 12. 
For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, were, where would be the hearing? If the whole were, whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, one, each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? He goes into very specific application here. But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Eye says to the hand, I don't need you, get out. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No much rather those members of the body which seems to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow great honor. And our unrepresentable part have greater modesty. God composed the body. Paul said. We have a different opinion. You may get out of this congregation. You may be tempted to say that way. But Paul disagrees. No schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to do. Let us remember that. The members should be the same, care for one another, love your neighbor as yourself, Christ said, because there are the same members of the body.